Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 1514. As always, it's a pleasure to have you with us. If you're brand new to the podcast or you haven't been listening for long, I encourage you to check out our archive. We're almost up to 200 episodes and we're very excited about that milestone, but that means that there's lots of stuff that you haven't had a chance to listen to. You can find all of our episodes on our website, biblicalcc.org. Of course, you can go to your podcast platform of preference where you're listening to this now and check out the previous episodes there as well. Today, you're going to hear an interview that I did where I was actually the guest and not the host. I was recently a guest on the Mighty Oaks show, which is a program put out by the Mighty Oaks Foundation. It is June of 2021, and June is PTSD Awareness Month. So they invited me onto the program to share about post-traumatic stress, what it is, some of the basic biblical understanding for it, as well as how to care for people who are struggling with post-traumatic stress. Uh, It's a passion of mine. I'm on the advisory board for Mighty Oaks, so it was a great, great pleasure to be a guest on their show. The show ended up being about an hour long, so we're going to break it up into two different episodes. Uh, This one and the next week we'll have part two. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's really informative, and I hope it encourages you to get out there and care for and pray for those who've gone through intense, intense suffering and are struggling in some of the aftermath of that. Thanks again for listening to 1514. I'll catch you next time. Curtis, thank you so much. I know it was a last minute ask, but uh, really appreciate you uh, jumping on with us and, and diving into this very, very big, very important uh, topic. Yeah, Jeremy. So thanks so much for having me. I was glad to get the call. I'm, as you mentioned, a huge friend and fan of the Mighty Oaks Foundation and all the work that you guys are doing. So thanks so much for having me on the show today. Before we uh, jump into the specific conversation, for those who aren't familiar with the Biblical Counseling Coalition, can you talk about um, you know, what you do, what the coalition does, and your approach to counseling? I think biblical counseling is something that is often maybe associated with uh, another phrase, Christian counseling, um, you know, both uh, have their place. There is secular or therapeutic counseling. Can you talk about what you guys do and, and maybe parse out the difference in, in uh, approaches to counseling? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, first of all, biblical counseling really is the counseling that at the center um, says the Bible is sufficient to answer all of the questions that we need to live a life uh, that is pleasing to the Lord. And so that the depth of the minds of scripture, we have not begun to uh, pull out all the truths that we can apply to all the types of issues and problems that face us in life. God did not leave his people for thousands of years without wisdom to address those difficulties until Freud came along. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, his word has been guiding us and answering our questions, giving us hope and healing for all the problems that we face since Genesis. I mean, if you really think, uh, if you want to I'd tell people this is the modern biblical counseling movement started about 
50, almost 60 years ago now. Uh, but really, biblical counseling began when God spoke to Adam and Eve after they sinned and began to giving them instruction on how to live in a fallen world that they, and how to address the sin and suffering that they encounter because of it. Uh, the Biblical Counseling Coalition is really, I'm super thrilled to be in an environment where I can say we're the JSOC of biblical counseling <laughs> and somebody knows what I'm talking about. Uh, some of our other council members describe us as the UN of biblical counseling for those sure. who aren't familiar with Joint Special Operations Command. But we really do. We bring together 65 leaders in biblical counseling from around the world. These are people who are writing books, teaching at seminaries and colleges, pastoring in churches, leading counseling organizations. And we try to build unity around the primacy of the Word of God in the care of souls. Uh, in uh, originally when biblical, the modern movement began, uh, biblical counseling wasn't a popular term and a lot of people tried to avoid using it. Um, but now it's become so popular, our danger is that people want to adopt it who actually are practicing something else uh, besides biblical counseling. And you mentioned already uh, concepts of like integrationism, Christian psychology, Christian counseling. Uh, and for those who are, don't travel in this world, it can seem kind of confusing and like, what's the difference? What's the big deal? But if you think about it kind of like a spectrum, there are people on one side of the spectrum who say that the Bible should never enter into the counseling room. Uh, counseling is just for clinicians. It's, a, it's purely a medical issue, and we shouldn't involve the spirituality stuff in it. And then all the way over on the other end of the spectrum are people who, if you say the word psychology, their hair will catch on fire and, and they'll be really <laughs> upset. Uh, the coalition, <clears throat> our members make up a, a swath of that spectrum just kind of to the, maybe to the right of what is known as Christian psychology. Uh, we, we don't try to integrate psychological methods and theories that would be counter to scripture, uh, but we also don't want to ignore good science and good research and the truths that are out there from, from all of the, the knowledge that God has imparted to us through different avenues. So we, um, yeah, we make up, that's kind of the coalition, our swath. If you want to know more about what is biblical counseling, that question kind of sparks your interest. We have a document on our website called the confessional, our confessional statement. And it's a point by point. These are the distinctives of what is biblical counseling. Uh, and that document was put together by 36 experts in the field, uh, leaving out some of the things that sometimes cause division within our movement uh, and maintaining and keeping those things that are central that really distinguish what is true biblical counseling. Yeah, That's awesome. I, I appreciate your explanation. And you and I have talked about this a lot, but uh, I grew up in the nuthetic counseling mm -hmm. yep. world, uh, you know, the, the churches that I was a part of. And when I grew up, nuthetic counseling was what is now called biblical counseling. Um, but 30 years ago, science was evil. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was no answers to be found in science and, and really uh, understanding that the Bible has the answers. It is sufficient. It, it speaks to yeah. uh, who we are and what we need to do and the direction that we need to go and how our creator designed us. But uh, science has some helpful things to say, particularly as we look at post-traumatic stress related to combat. We talk about yeah. uh, you know, various emotional issues tied to uh, traumatic brain injuries and other organic issues that we have that also have an emotional or spiritual component. And, and I think understanding that, and, and you do such a great job of, of kind of bridging that gap. And I appreciate so much what you guys are doing. 
Yeah, well, thank you. So let's jump into this topic. And this is a big <laughs> one. We we do talk about this a lot on this show. And, and as you know, through the work that we do. Um, but, but I'll start here. Many of the folks who would be listening to this or watching this may not have served in the military, may not be in that first responder community, yeah. but are dealing with trauma. And so we can acknowledge clearly that trauma is not reserved for veterans or for those that have served in combat. So give us a, a primer <laughs> on what post-traumatic stress is, maybe even what post-traumatic stress disorder is. We try to be careful about how we use that phrase, but can you talk about what it is and then maybe even on the other side of that, what it is not. So we know what we're talking about. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And, and the way you phrase that uh, you and I have talked about this a lot, as you mentioned, and we, I try to be careful and use distinguish how I use PTS versus PTSD. Right. And I talk about PTSD when when somebody has a diagnosis from a therapist or something, and they have they come with that diagnosis. I'll say, yeah, you've been diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, but when I'm talking about the phenomenon that the world has recognized people struggle with after facing certain types of experiences, I prefer to call it post-traumatic stress. Um, and as you guys know in your literature and other things, it's because that D really is unhelpful in a number of ways. Um, and we're not really talking about something that is an abnormal response to normal life circumstances. We're talking about a very common response to extreme circumstances and extreme suffering that comes into people's lives. So that's, that's really going to be the nugget that we come away with. Uh, and so I start with that and then kind of describe, so what is this phenomenon? What is it when somebody goes to the, the VA or to a, to a therapist and they get this diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, what's going on? First of all, they have to have experienced what is known as a, uh, a potentially traumatic event. Uh, or PTE is how it's often defined in the literature. And that in the, in the DSM, the, the kind of manual that they use to diagnose psychological disorders, is when somebody directly experiences or witnesses an act or threat of death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Uh, or if you hear about or learn about one of those things happening to a close loved one. So somebody pulls a gun on you and threatens to kill you, that's a potentially traumatic event. If somebody, uh, you know, hits your, you watch your child get run over by a car, that's a potentially traumatic event. If you're in a hurricane and you see somebody drown or something, that's a potentially traumatic event. It happens lots of different things. Or like if somebody ran into your office one day and said, Jeremy, uh, I'm really sorry to tell you, but Suzanne just died, and you weren't expecting it. It was she wasn't sick. Uh, that's a sudden, unexpected death. That's yeah. also known as a potentially traumatic event, and and it's important to limit uh, what we define as those events to those types of things because the reality is is that those things are extreme, and if we start to have a really negative reaction that we'll talk about in a minute to things that are less significant, um, it's a totally different issue. And if we start now, I was just talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago that the word trauma is way overused. Everybody's been traumatized. Everybody, right. you know, if, if you disagree with somebody, you're traumatizing them now. Right. And it's, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's um, sadly, it's diminishing and disrespecting, I think, the things that people who've gone through those intense forms of suffering actually have been through. Um, I, I actually, it was interesting. You, you joined me for a class I was teaching 
and I had a student at this seminary who wrote a paper on the trauma that children who are removed from their homes experience, uh, involuntary, involuntary removal. He works in the foster care system. And initially I kind of pushed back on that idea because I was, you know, that's not what's classically a potentially traumatic event. But then as I continued to read the paper and discuss it with him, I realized, no, what these children are experiencing is, is traumatic. Um, it, and, and so I started thinking more broadly, like theologically, what's going on? Why is it that these types of things impact people in a way that breaking my favorite coffee mug doesn't? <laughs> and what I think when I, when I come away from it is that these experiences are something that threaten to or actually do compromise, damage, or destroy uh, some aspect of our identity as image bearers of God. Uh, so if you think about death, obviously we are created to live. And if you eliminate <laughs> your life, that's a violation that, that destroys the image of God. That's why in Genesis we're told if a man sheds a man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed because he's destroyed the image of God. Uh, if your your bodily, you were made, God created us with male and female bodies that are unique uh, from the rest of creation. And if you damage, you destroy that through uh, an accident, you remove a limb, something like that, that impedes on the image of God. Sexual integrity uh, is another aspect of that. You know, the fact that we are male and female is significant. The fact that we throughout history have defined people as virgins and not virgins. Like we don't run around with that label, but every almost every language has a distinguishing uh, especially for women, you become a missus versus a miss. You're a senora versus a senorita. You're a madame versus a mademoiselle, right? Because you have been, because there's a significant identity factor to your sexuality and your sexual activity. Not to the point where we're, you know, we don't want to go so far as to say you can choose your identity and get into yeah. all that identity politics. Yeah. But our sexuality is an important aspect of who we are as, as image bearers of God. That's why he said, in the image of God, he made them male and female. Um, so when those things, are, and then our family is also an aspect. We were created to be relational beings like God the Father in the Trinity is relational. So when one of those things is threatened or destroyed or damaged, it impacts our soul in a more significant way than other forms of suffering. So. Thanks for letting me go really deep on that, but that's that's just talking about why potentially traumatic events are different than other types of events. And then when you get to post-traumatic stress, what takes a potentially traumatic event from being potentially traumatic to traumatic is the response, what it actually does to the person. And uh, <clears throat> again, if you go to the, the DSM, they're going to identify four different clusters of symptoms that people wrestle with, that are, that are common uh, for people to wrestle with after they've been through that type of experience. Um, the first are, are known as intrusion symptoms. So these are, you know, what everybody pictures with PTSD, the flashbacks, the memories, wow. the intrusive memories that come when you don't want them. Um, Avoidance symptoms is the second cluster. This is where people try to do everything they can to avoid reminders of the trauma uh, or anything that might initiate their threat response system, that, that fight, flight, freeze, or faint system that we are all very familiar with because of what it does to them. 
Then there's negative alterations in cognition or mood. That's the, the third cluster. That's just people who have sometimes, you know, people have trouble, difficulty thinking and concentrating and focusing. And this, can, this happens a lot with people wrestling with post-traumatic stress for a number of reasons, which we may or may not get into later, but it's pretty common. Uh, I remember going and training some of you guys' instructors in biblical counseling, and we're doing this all day long training. And we've got guys with TBI and others who are wrestling with post-traumatic stress, and it's like, man, this, the normal classroom setting may not be the best kind of format, mm. especially all day long, for somebody in that capacity because it's just difficult to f- maintain focus or they're just ticked off all the time, right? I mean, we've, <laughs> like that's the, the negative. I know those guys. Yeah, the negative <laughs> alterations in mood. It's like, oh, you just feel on edge and you're just ticked, man, like for no good reason. Um, and then the fourth cluster would be alterations in arousal or reactivity. This is hypervigilance, difficulty sleeping, uh, somebody who's super jumpy. And you see some of those depicted, people are familiar with those depictions in, in TV and, and movies, which obviously dramatize it to an extent, but, the, but that's kind of what somebody's looking for to get a diagnosis. You have this event, you're struggling with these things, these things interfere with your life and it lasts for more than a month and it happened a month after you have that event, then you're diagnosed with PTSD. Um, the, when, again, I, I prefer to look at it more theologically and deeper. The DSM is written by people who don't know God, don't believe there's a soul, so they're not going to look for all these other things. Right. Uh, but a friend of mine and I, Charlie Hodges, been working on this definition. So bear with me. It's post-traumatic stress is a whole person response to traumatic events that encompass the physical, mental, emotional, behavioral, and spiritual being of those affected. It results in significant disruption at life, at home, work, school, and church. It draws on anger, fear, sadness, shame, guilt to disrupt family relationships, friendships, careers, and Christian service. Those affected will often compensate in ways that may compound the struggle they face. But when addressed in a God-honoring way, it can be a tool in the hands of God for great good, helping the individual become more like Christ and equipping them for greater service in the kingdom of God. And so that's kind of our working definition. And I, I really love the end part there because when we understand that God is sovereign, he's controlling all the things that are going on in life. And that's, hard, that's a hard reality to grasp, especially when we're talking about intense suffering. Um, post-traumatic stress is not all bad. In the hands of God, it can actually be a tool that is used for great good. And I think it's important that we, and you guys demonstrate this, manifest this all the time in the, in the legacy program and other programs you do. So. That's, uh, man, that's incredible. We, we need to link to that definition. Uh, I've said when talking about post-traumatic stress, uh, I've said this many times, definitions are helpful, but they're only helpful if they serve as a bridge to healing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I think we can take a clinical definition and you started with that. We can take a clinical definition and it, ends up putting people on islands Mm -hmm. where either my identity is now someone who has PTSD because I fit within the very specific DSM five clinical definition, or it puts them on another Island where they won't get help because, well, I don't, I don't, I don't fit that definition. I didn't have those things happen to me, but I'm living in a place of great anxiety, maybe even overwhelm and panic. I need help, Mm -hmm. but I whatever I'm dealing with is not tied to what a clinician would say is trauma. And so, um, 
that definition is not helpful. If anything, it's divided me and us. Uh, you worked at the VA for a while and, you know, you work with a lot of veterans now. And, and I think for a lot of veterans, the diagnosis clinically of post-traumatic stress disorder, it becomes a badge of honor in a weird way. Yeah, yeah <laughs> then it becomes their identity. And it's a really strange thing, but it also then prevents them from getting the healing and the help that they need because they now identify with that definition instead of seeing it as something that the Bible has answers to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It definitely becomes an identity and that identity becomes a problem for a few reasons. One, uh, anytime we mess with our identity and where we find our true identity, uh, we're going to have problems. And that's not not limited to, to PTSD. Uh, people find their identity in all kinds of things. Actually, IBCD, the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, two years ago had a whole conference on identity, and like every workout was like breakout shot work uh, workshop was, I am this, I am a label, I am an academic, mm -hmm. I am a whatever. And anytime we put our identity outside of who I am in Christ and what God says about me, we screw things up. With right. with post traumatic stress, that obviously becomes a problem. But with the disorder, and this is one of the reasons we like to take that D out of disorder, is it, it communicates to somebody, this is a medical condition that's happened to me that there is no cure for. That's what the VA will tell you, right? And, and we see that through the, just the crapshoot of experimental things they've done with people to figure out how to help. And they're trying to help, right? The VA is trying to do a good job, but they don't have the primary piece, the, the faith piece that's missing. So they're throwing drugs, they're throwing all kinds of therapies, equine therapy, uh, yoga, everything you can into this mix. Uh, but what they've told veterans is you're, this is it, like you're stuck. So there's the identity and it becomes a badge of honor. It becomes a, a shield that they can use to protect themselves from other people, to push people away, to actually push away the counsel and help that they could get. Uh, but it also that, that diagnosis without a cure steals hope from them. And uh, I, I teach a, a class on counseling post-traumatic stress. And one of the things that I help people understand is, yes, there are physiological changes, but even secular researchers have identified that those physiological, those changes in the brain can be reversed through talk therapy. Uh, and, and I sent some of your instructors an article that points to that uh, reality because we want to show people, no, you're not stuck. This is not something that you can't grow through and, and overcome and actually be made better uh, because of. So yeah, the, the identity piece is huge. And that's why taking that D off says, I'm not disordered. I'm not broken. I'm not a freak. I'm not messed up. I've been through a really significant suffering. Um, it has affected my life but it doesn't determine who I am. It doesn't change everything about my life. And it actually can be a tool for my good and God's glory. Um, why is it that some people respond one way to trauma, traumatic incidents, yeah. and others respond very differently to those things? Uh, what is, what's the mechanism there? And I think the, the question then leads to how do we become resilient against trauma yeah. um, that inevitably will come into our lives? Yeah, I mean, that's the trillion dollar question that it, researchers have been trying to figure out for, for decades now, trying to figure out why is it that if you and I walk into a situation, it's going to impact you differently than me. And there are a lot of um, 
what are called pre-traumatic factors that influence somebody, whether or not they're going to develop uh, these types of symptoms. Um, and they can range everything from women have a tendency to, to respond worse than men to if you had early childhood trauma, if you've experienced trauma as a child, you're probably more likely to develop these things than somebody else. So if you have one guy who was abused as a kid and another kid who was, guy who wasn't, they both see the same combat theater, um, one is more likely to develop PTSD than the other. If you And when you stop and think about that, some of that is because it is largely because of the responses they learn to deal with suffering at that time. You know, you've heard the testimonies at, at Mighty Oaks at the Legacy Program. Guys who are, whose families are migrant farmers, they're, they're single mom going from farm to farm to farm. And as soon as she gets, in into an, she gets into a relationship, that guy starts abusing her. They hang in there. They start abusing the kids. She moves up in the night and moves. Well, that type of situation is not going to equip that child with good mechanisms and, and, and proper responses to deal with that suffering. So when they face suffering as an adult, they're going to revert to what they learned before. Um, they don't have that. The most significant factor, uh, which will not you won't see in the literature, is their faith, their relationship with God. What they believe about God and what they believe God believes about them are yep. actually hugely significant issues. So the testimony... There's a book called The Chosen Few that documents a particular unit in the army that went through the Battle of Wanat. A mutual friend of ours was there. And there's a testimony in that book by their captain, Captain Meyer, who says that he almost lost his faith because of what he saw in that battle. But what he realized was that the pre-traumatic factor that influenced was that he had a bad theology. He had a theology that said, if I'm a Christian, if I love God and I do all the right things, I'll be safe and my men will be safe. God will protect us and get us home. Well, he thought he was doing that kind of life, living that kind of life. He had a, a particular soldier in his unit that was a Christian and he, that soldier died in that, in that battle. And he said, this is not, I'm done. I'm done with faith. The problem was not that he, that he had faith the problem was that his faith, his theology was wrong. He didn't have yeah. a theology of suffering that included the types of things that he would encounter in life, the types of things that the scriptures do speak to and actually promise we will face suffering in this world. And God doesn't promise us an easy road. But if you go into a situation believing that God promises you an easy road and then you die or hurt or you see other people die, you're, something's got to give. Either your perception of reality or your this faith. And oftentimes that's... Uh, the faith is what gets jettisoned. Thankfully, in his case, he came across a great a great book by Johnny Erickson Tata that really taught him true biblical theology, uh, true biblical theology of suffering, and helped him understand that God allows things that He hates in order to accomplish what He loves, and it it helped preserve his faith. So, how do you deal with? Um, we'll say veterans because that's where I, I spend most of my time. Yep. How do you deal with? veterans who have adopted that identity associated with post-traumatic stress. Um, and, and because of that, there's a care or deference given to them by maybe their loved ones. 
certainly in the United States, by by society at large. Uh, most people don't understand PTSD, so they assume that if you've been to combat, you have it. Right. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of perks is not the right word, but there are a lot of perks that come along with, yeah. um, you know, with being damaged in that way. Um, and so there's an obstacle to healing. How do you how do you help people get beyond that obstacle and understand whatever it is you're gaining from not getting help is not nearly as good as what you can gain by getting help? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to pitch that more broadly, but how do you how do you help someone realize they need help and help is available and they really should lean into that? Yeah, well, that's a great question few really great questions piled up. I'll try to tackle them. The first thing I is- I try to pile them up for you. I want you to have a lot to think about. <laughs> uh, the first is the, the first thing I try to do, especially with veterans, first responders, I try to get them to Mighty Oaks, honestly. Like I do. I tell people all the time, send, it will save you months of, of conversation if you can just get them to go to a legacy program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if they don't, then there's this great book. You may have heard of it. It's called The Truth About PTSD. That's uh, a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, know, I know the authors. Yeah. 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 Couple, it's amazing what some Marines and a, a ghostwriter can do. No, uh, <laughs> some Marines and a crayon can accomplish. Yeah. <laughs> But actually, you guys tackle you guys tackle a number of those uh, common myths or things that people will believe. I think there are seven of them in, in that book where you you just hit them head head on and say, "Man, you guys that that identity or the belief that I can't change or the belief that everybody else around me has to walk on eggshells, all this stuff is just false." And and my one of my favorite phrases, uh, John Fulberg said, is "Mighty Oaks is not a hug a vet program; it's a poke a vet program." Right. <laughs> um, because, but what what it is? It's the mastery of the peer to peer counseling, where and it's not really count. I mean, whatever you want to call it, the peer to peer approach, where right. a guy comes in and says, "Nobody can speak to me. Nobody can say anything to me because they haven't been where I've been. They haven't seen what I've seen. They haven't done what I've done." And when you actually have somebody who's been where they've been, seen what they've seen, done what they've done, stand up and say, you're full of it. Um, This is the truth. Here's the path forward. I was where you are. Here's where I am now. Let me show you how to get there. It just tears those walls down. Now, that's not unique in counseling. All anybody who's counseled for three weeks has probably had that happen to them because um, no matter what your life experiences is, not you assume that nobody else is face what you face. There's this weird pride that we develop over even our suffering um, that makes it hard for us to believe the truth that God's word says that no temptation has taken us except that which is common to man. And when you have a peer-to-peer approach, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 13, for those who want to look it up. Uh, When you have a peer-to-peer approach, it puts flesh on that reality and they can't deny it. Right. Separate from Mighty Oaks, if you can't do that, I encourage my when I when I'm training counselors in post traumatic stress, I say, listen, you have a team approach. Um, there are multiple people in the team. One of those team members is what I call a co-sufferer. This is somebody who has been through a traumatic experience and has begun to see post traumatic sanctification, what the what the world would call post traumatic growth. Um, if they're a believer, it's it's sanctification. It's God's work in them to make them more like Jesus. And that person serves that purpose. Um, me as a counselor, I, I also encourage counselees if you or counselors, if you have some type of trauma in your past, if you have some kind of story of, of growth and development through trauma, use it. Use it in your counseling. And I, I was abused as a child, so I can bring that to bear, not as a, 
tool. But man, when, when you can just share that with somebody, it opens up their hearts in a way that is just hard to do. Um, so yeah, bring in a co-sufferer. If you can't get them to Mighty Oaks, bring in a co-sufferer to put flesh to the reality of Scripture so they, they can see it. Obviously, we wish they would just say, oh, it's the Bible, I believe it, that's true, that's great. Yeah, right. But not everybody does. But when you can begin to manifest the truth, manifest and demonstrate the truth of Scripture in life, then it's hard for them to argue with that. Um, the the, the help, helping them see that they're missing out on help is, is just telling them that. And you, you're using this as a tool, as a, as a mechanism to defend things, but you're actually causing yourself to be stuck uh, in that. A lot of times in counseling, it's just being speaking truth, and not in a mean or cruel way, but in a direct way where we can yeah. say, you're hurting yourself more than you're helping yourself. There is help available, but you have to choose it. You have to step towards it. Uh, and you guys are huge on that, right? Like the, the moment of change, people come to you and say, I've been through a year-long, six-month-long program, haven't changed, right. what do you do in a week? And you guys point out, it's not a week, it's a moment. When you choose to align your life with God's plan for, your, for you, that's when the change begins. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they, they've, you talk about bad theology. I think that's a bad, <laughs> it's bad theology that prevents people from getting help because they think that wherever they are right now is the best it's ever going to be. God can't possibly have more for them than this. And yeah. that's just bad theology. It's just not yeah. true. And so they get stuck. I think in a lot of ways we incentivize that being stuck too. We make it very comfortable to, to not get help. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's unfortunate. Um, outside of a counseling situation, this is a question I get asked at least once a week by a family member. Outside of a counseling situation where they're sitting in front of you, they're asking for help, or you're trying to motivate them as you know the, the professional, <laughs> how does a family member help someone in their life that they love, that they care about, who's stuck? How does the family member communicate to them, you need to get help, help is available, what, what does that look like? You know, I'll say things like give them a book, point them to a resource. Um, but how can a family member, a mom, a dad, a, a sister, a brother, you know, a loved one, how can they help someone who is stuck because of trauma? Yeah, I think it's, uh, man, it's a really hard thing to do. One, the first thing you need to do is you need to be praying. You absolutely, like this, the most important person involved in this situation is not you, me, the counselor, that person, it's God. Mm. Yeah. You want to invoke divine <laughs> movement in that person's heart because really he's the only one who changes hearts. So you want to be praying. You want to go to that person and just cry out to them and say, I, I love you. Your family loves you. You're hurting. We see it. We're hurting. We want you to get help. And then point them to sources of help. Like you said, a book, uh, Mighty Oaks, of counselor, a biblical counselor, um, something. And if they, they continue to resist, you know, they'll, they'll, there's all kinds of excuses. I've tried that, done that, done everything. There's no hope for me, all this stuff. Keep praying. Keep sharing opportunities. Let them know that you're there to talk and listen anytime you want. But the other thing is stories, man. Stories are so powerful. And when you can have a testimony of transformation uh, by somebody who they respect, they look up to, they recognize has been through what they've been through, then they, then then that helps. And that's why I love one, the never fight alone movie that just came out that you guys did. That's going to be huge, but also the vignette videos you have on your YouTube channel of like Luis and Brandon and all the guys who share their testimony. 
uh, Reed and others who just say, man, like, this is what I went through. This is what it did to me. This is what my life was doing. And when I tried to handle it on my own, which is what you're doing right now, yeah. it just screwed it up worse. So I needed to get help in reaching out. So uh, individual personal stories, videos, whatever you can. The other thing is, is pow- obviously, I believe the power of scripture. There's a lot of stories of suffering, trauma, and transformation in scripture and using those stories as well. And that, that does a double whammy. One, it shows people that, oh, uh, yeah, there have been people who've suffered a lot worse than I have who are doing better. (laughs) And, oh, the, you mean the Bible actually talks about this stuff? Right. I just thought it was a bunch of cool, funny fairy tale stories about people who are perfect and holy. It's like, Clearly, you've never read it, but yeah, uh, right. right. <laughs> but it, it starts pointing them to that solution as well. So, yeah, the power the power of testimony is incredible. We obviously see that a lot in our program. Yep. Um, you know, we were at an event together this last week, and one of the testimonies given was just that. It was it was an incredible testimony from someone mm-hmm. who said, "I went to one of these programs just to observe it. I had some things I was trying to figure out." really from a business perspective. And I wanted to learn some things. I wasn't there for me. And then the rest of his testimony that night was, and then I heard this and then I heard that. And then I had this conversation and then God spoke to my heart and it released some things I've been carrying. And, um, and it was all because of the power of testimony and the power of story. And man, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing because you're right. We think that we're the only ones who ever gone through anything, which is stupid, but we get in our heads and think, well, I'm the only one who's ever dealt with this. And when you start to hear other people have dealt with it, it, it really changes the conversation. Well, Satan wants us to believe that we're alone. Like one of the tactics that he uses is just like what we would do with our enemies, right? Isolate, just cut them off from all other resources. If he can get you to believe that you're alone, that nobody else understands, that nobody else cares, then the, the path of isolation is, is death. Uh, the, and we know the numbers, I mean, well, we know the proposed numbers of over 20 veterans a day committing suicide. Right. I guarantee you every single one of those people feels alone. Feels yeah. like nobody understands. Like, I, I, I have to do this because nobody else gets it. And, uh, yeah, so we have to help them understand those are lies from an enemy who wants you to kill yourself. Yes. Period. And even just saying it to them that bluntly. Uh, might be the thing that triggers them to to move in a different direction, actually reach out, get the help that they need. Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. Also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.